Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. I retired as a sergeant at a Manhattan North Homicide Squad. With me tonight is my co-host, straight out of Brooklyn, second grade detective, Phil Grimaldi. How's it going tonight, Phil? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, excited to get into the show. I, uh, I, We have a guest here with some resume. That's all I'm going to say for now. It, it, it's it's unbelievable. You know, I, I tell all of our, our uh, subscribers and our fans, like we try to get eclectic uh, guests. I learned that word in college years ago. <laughs> and uh, we try to get a, a good, you know, a well-rounded group of guests and not just people from law enforcement. So, folks, if you like Police Off the Cuff, please subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, hit that um, the bell, give us a thumbs up. And we have actually have some now uh, channel members here too. I just saw a channel member before. Here she is. Heather just joined our channel. We have four levels of our channel. First one is the bucket. Second one is polish my rack. The third one is dipped in butter. And the fourth one is heated dipped in butter, which we don't have anyone at that level yet, but we're hoping soon, you know, because it really feels good. Warm butter really sounds good, you know, because yeah, yeah, you're usually yeah. dipping a piece of lobster in it, you know. So that, That's I right. Like that. I like that. You know, tonight, uh, as I said, we have a very eclectic guest. I'm going to use his best picture, and I'm going to just read a little bit of his uh, his resume. He grew up in uh, Redondo Beach, California. Don't hold that against him. Come on. We all wish we could grow up in California, but it's too damn expensive to live there, right? <laughs> and uh, he loved the outdoors. And he went into the service. He's been a Green Beret. Uh, he's been a, uh, a a ranger, guys that jump out of the damn planes. Uh, he's an MD, a medical doctor. I mean, Mike uh, Mike Simpson. Mike, do you remember that that song years ago? Silver wings upon their chest. Oh, These yeah. are men, they, America's they best. That's oh, right. Yeah. One hundred men will test today, yeah. but only three for the Green Beret. <laughs> Hell yeah! The Green Here's Beret was the standard of machoism during the Vietnam War. It seems like now it's sort of segued to the Navy SEALs. Yeah, they uh, they write more books than we do, and they make better movies than we do. So we used to <laughs> we used to have a joke that the reason Navy SEALs existed is there weren't enough roles in soap operas for men. Yeah. So they created the Navy SEALs, but you know, it's, I'm just chafing their nuts a little bit. I've actually, I've been on target quite a few times with the SEALs. I got a, a lot of SEAL friends and they're, they're a great group of guys. I would go through a doorway anytime with a group of SEALs. You know, Mike, as you know, and I'm sure uh, many people know their training is, is savage, you know, oh, yeah. they have to oh, come yeah. awful close to drowning in their training. I would, I say, I quit. I'm quitting today. You know, they have to actually uh, that where they tie their hands behind their back and they have to survive in a pool. I don't know how, how many minutes it is. That is the scariest thing on earth to me, you know? Yeah. Well, not only, so, and they're doing it in Coronado, which everybody thinks, Oh, California, it's nice. It's beautiful. Right. The weather's nice. You guys know how cold the Pacific ocean is. So I know, I know, you, I know you guys got the polar bear club up there and everything. The Pacific Ocean is fucking cold. Let me tell you, it's it's that's some cold water. And when you're tired, it's early. Sun's not up yet. You're not eating right, and you're stressed out anyway. You know, and that's why you you always see these pictures of these seal candidates, right? And all of their teeth are chattering right. in the surf, man, because that that's just absolutely miserable. So, and two things that I I don't like being cold, 
And I damn sure don't like being deprived of oxygen. And that's basically all these guys do in training. So yeah, hats off to them. Well, I, you know, when I learned how the, I think I, I heard the, um, who's the, the body, the former pro wrestler that was a SEAL. Um, oh, Jesse? Jesse, Jesse the body, Va- body, body Ventura, yeah. He was explaining one time how they had to survive in the pool with their hands tied behind their back. And the technique mm-hmm. was that you would allow yourself to sink to the bottom and then kick off the bottom and get to the top and take a deep breath and repeat it over and over and over again. I don't know how many minutes did they have to survive? Two, three, I don't know exactly. Yeah, it's, it's like a while et- though. Yeah. It must seem like an attorney. And that's that's got to be the scariest thing on earth, not to have your hands to be able to you know, stay that, afloat. That cold water saps your strength. When you go into cold water, I'm sure, uh, Mike, you can tell us, that really oh, yeah. takes away. I mean, it, it saps you out pretty quick, too. You know, it's, it's swimming around in warm water in the, uh, you know, in the Bahamas or something is one thing. But when you're getting into that cold water, that really saps your strength quick. It, you know, it saps your strength. And it also, there's a huge mental effect, right, the, the cold water. But oddly enough, there's a weird physiological effect when you're in cold water. It's called the mammalian diving reflex that lowers your heart rate. And you can actually typically hold your breath longer in cold water. But what's holding you back is it's so uncomfortable that you don't want to. I guess so you got to get through that mentally. Yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, obviously that's the difficult part for most people. That would absolutely be the most difficult part for me. I, I'm terrible at holding my breath. So, Do, do they actually turn you upside down too? Like I saw in the movie, an officer, a gentleman, when they were going for the training, they mm-hmm. uh, they they launched them into a, a pool of water and they were upside down and they had to get out of the, I guess it was a simulated uh, plane. Uh, do, do they do that in the same thing in the Green Beret training or in the Navy SEAL training? Yeah, they don't in, uh, I, I didn't go, especially, we have the Special Forces Underwater uh, Diver course out of, in Key West which is really, it's, it's similar to what uh, the, the SEALs do in their pool week because they're, they're considered the gold standard. So they kind of set the parameters for how that school operates. And I know there's a, there's a portion of the school where they, they're, they're spinning you around and tying your regulator in a knot and everything else. Um, something I had to go through, which is a lot like what you're talking about. So that's, we call that dunker training. And I had to go through crude, there's pilot dunker training, which is what you saw in, that, in the film where they're in an individual cockpit. And then you have crew dunker training where they do the same thing, but you're in a big helicopter fuselage and it's on a crane and they, they hold it like four feet off the water. And then they, they let it loose. They turn the brake off and it free falls, hits the water. And then it flips upside down because that's actually what it will, will do in the ocean because sure. the, the helicopter, everything heavy is on top. So it'll flip upside down. And so they tell you, you can't, remove your seatbelt until you've gone completely upside down and stopped moving. Cause if you do, you're going to be free floating through here and you're going to kick everybody else in the, in the face and you're going to be in the way. And then the, the added thing that kind of screws you up is, is you're blindfolded. They'll give you swim goggles, but they're painted black, right? Wow. So you're in the seat, you feel yourself fall, you hit the water, you feel the water rushing in, you flip upside down and then you got to kind of gauge in your head. Okay. I've stopped moving. Now I can take my seatbelt off. And then you got to remember where the door is, but other people are kicking you in the face. I, I, I said when it was over, I said the only way this could have been worse is if you put oil on the on the surface, set it on fire, and then release snakes into the pool. Because <laughs> literally, you know, you, you having your vision taken away is disorienting, scary enough. And then you add water and other people grabbing at you on top of that. 
the, to me, the dunker was one of the worst things I ever had to do. It, it's uh, I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to do it more than a couple of times. Did that, did any of the training that you received, uh, even this dunker training save your life in real combat situations? Oh, hundred percent. I, it's the, I, I was pretty fortunate that I was, I had progressed pretty far in my career by the time I was in a situation where I was actually getting shot at. So I had put in enough reps in training and in pressure testing uh, and doing stuff as realistic as possible that when it, when it was real, it did not, it did not seem that foreign to me. You know, I can only imagine, you know, guys, we, you know, we were talking about Vietnam earlier, guys who went through a shake and bake basic training course, jumped on a plane. And then the next thing you know, you know, they, they left home four months ago and now they're in a jungle halfway around the world getting shot at. I can only imagine what it must've been like for them because, you know, like I say, I had, I'd been doing live fires on live fire ranges, very realistic live fire ranges uh, for years in my career before I got to the point that, Hey, that guy's actually shooting at me. You know, Mike yeah. on the police department, whenever something goes wrong, people always say, Oh, they need more training. They need to, to train more, but they really don't mean that because training costs lots of money and, and time. Yeah, and time, and it takes police off the road. Mm -hmm. So in the police culture, they say it to hold it against police, but they don't really mean it because they don't want to pay for it, and they don't want to take cops off the road. Is that similar in the Army, or or they want you to get the training in in the uh, service? It's Well, I would say Army-wide, it's very true. You know, especially if you're in what we call the big Army, the conventional Army. Really, really difficult for the, those guys to get adequate t- training. The higher you kind of move up the pecking order into into rangers, into special forces, and once you get into the you know what we call the tier one special mission units, like you know SEAL Team Six uh, and Delta Force, those guys get to spend enough time training because that's you know that is their focus. And uh, you know I say all the time, you know the the Ranger Regiment was a great example. There wasn't really anything extremely special about what we did in the Rangers. We just did basic soldier stuff really, really, really well because we were able to train more than the rest of the Army. That was, you know, we were given time to focus on that. We didn't have to spend as much time raking leaves and, uh, you know, doing sensitivity training and stuff like that. We were on live fire ranges doing physical fitness training, doing the stuff that soldiers should be doing to, to stay proficient at their jobs. You mean you never peeled potatoes? I peeled <laughs> potatoes in basic training. <laughs> Oddly enough. So it's funny because that's, you know, that's the stereotype. Oh, that's what you do on KP duty. Right. And sure enough, the very first thing I had to do on KP duty was peel potatoes. So I was like, okay, where's the, and I knew how to peel potatoes. I worked, I done it in my mom's kitchen and I'd worked in a restaurant. I said, where's the potato peeler? And he points to this big bucket looking thing. And I'm looking for the little handle thing. He points to this big bucket. So they had a thing that you just dump all the potatoes in there and you close it. And it had like a grinding stone and you flip a switch and it sprays water in there. And the, the peels go shooting out one way and then you open it up and all the potatoes are peeled on the inside. Wow. That sounds like a French fry f- factory there. <laughs> right. And this, this was 1984. I went through basic training. So I can only imagine what they got now. Probably right out of a McDonald's factory. Yes, that's right. <laughs> right? That's why a lot of guys went to Mickey D's after they finished yeah, their stint, yeah. you know? You know, but Mike, I saw... I, I'm, go ahead, Phil. 
there's something to be said about the repetitive training because I myself went through the uh, NYPD Police Academy uh, six months. They gave you physical fitness training, shooting tactics, all these different things. I was involved in a shootout very shortly after I came out of the academy, about a month later. And um, the the instincts of growing up in New York and in Brooklyn in the streets, the instincts of what I learned as a kid growing up and the, the, the training, it all came together. And I just reacted the same way that I did when I, uh, when I was training, uh, you know, on, at the police range or, or in the tactics range. And then I was involved in a second shooting about four years later, 1986. The first one was 82. The second was 86. And at the time we were still carrying six shot revolvers. We didn't have automatics. The two guys that we were in the shootout with the second time, both were armed with automatics. One had a 45, the other one had a nine. And we knew that the job had come over. And the point I'm trying to make is when we eventually stopped them, it was a car chase and we, when they, they spun out and I, I, before they fired a shot at us. And before I fired a shot in my head, I was thinking I got to really count my rounds because I only have six they got automatics with 14, 15 rounds, and that was all training related. Thank God I survived uh, both of those shootings, and and both uh, both times my partner survived, and uh, both times the perpetrators were shot. Uh, they also survived, but it's just amazing how. I mean, I was 21 years old, one month out of the police academy, and the training just kicked right in. You know, so there's definitely something to be said about that. And like you said, the repetitiveness of it is what really. Uh, you know, you, you know, the breathing, all of that. Uh, there, 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 he, there he is, Mike, on the screen, uh, smiling. He was really happy. <laughs> a beautiful really, head of hair. He was, yeah, he, was really, yeah. he was really young back then. I think he that green bar up there is the combat cross, too. So he was already wearing that very early on in his career, which is yeah. the second highest medal the NYPD gives. So wow. Yeah. Good, you know? that, that really was, that was maybe 20 years ago. So yeah, the, the hair is still there. I just got a very short haircut recently for uh, solidarity. Uh, a good friend of mine has, uh, has nine 11 related cancer. So about two weeks ago, uh, me and a few of our friends, we all uh, shaved our heads down. So that's why or else I would have some kind of a, a quaff going, you know, <laughs> you know, Mike, the problem is these days too, is like Phil was talking about his training in a shooting. Is cops got to think of so many other things now. Yes. Uh, you know, are they, are they justified? Uh, uh, you know, how many rounds? You know, are they if the guy turns around and runs and shot at them, can they still keep shooting? It's it's sort of like the terms of engagement that the military has to deal yeah, with. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it's like. You know, it's the guys who are wearing the badge right now in 2021 and the guys and the gals who are, who are doing that and my hat's off to them because this is, I don't think there's ever been a harder time to be, to be a cop. I, just, I really don't. 100%. And I'm a, I'm a SWAT physician. I, I, I work with state and local and doing direct support. And uh, I had, I, I did a little bit of research and I found out that there's a way to kind of fast track uh, becoming a sworn LEO here in the state of Texas, if you come from a special forces background, and I was looking into doing it. And uh, my wife sat down across from me and she goes, look, I tolerated six years in the unit, multiple deployments. I don't, I I don't know if they want a guy with a machete. I don't know if they want a guy with a machete coming at them. Though. <laughs> I'll leave the machete at home. Right? <laughs> Basically my wife, my wife put her foot down and she said, uh, you're not going to be in 2021. You're not going to be a cop. She said, it's just not happening. I, I think she's right. You know, uh, you, what was Don't interesting to me and looking at your um, resume, you graduated high school in 1984. And, and I would think it was 20, um, 
what was it 2022 you went to medical school was that right what year did you no, go to medical? i was uh i was 36 when i went to 2002 I was, I was i'm sorry 2002 i just added 20 years to it so you were <laughs> but that's pretty tough to do to go back to, i mean medical school is really tough and to be out of school for a while and go right into medical school, that's got to be ridiculous yeah, well, I actually, I actually finished my undergraduate right before that because I was late to go to my undergraduate, so I was doing right. it on a- active duty at night school. So I, I had kind of had that going for me going into med school that that I had just recently finished undergrad. So I kind of knew how to, I knew how to, you know, come up with a study plan. The first two years of medical school just wrecked me though, pretty terribly. Um, third and fourth year were pretty easy for me because I, that's I all the practical. That's all the practical though. Right. Yeah. And I, and I'd been a medic already, so I knew how to do an exam. Right. I knew how to talk to patients. I knew how to check labs. I knew how to co- you know, come up with a plan. So that stuff was pretty easy for me. So it's funny because if you look at my grades, the first two years, I was, I was pretty average. And then uh, all of a sudden I'm doing better than everybody else in the, in my, what we call my clerkship scores um, just because that was so much easier, easier for me. And then uh, I was an intern at 40 and I did, you know, clinically I was fine, but I did notice that working shift work and working nights, you know, working a week of nights or sometimes a month of nights when you're 40 years old, your body doesn't spring back from that like it no. did when you were 22. Yeah, there was a, there was definitely, definitely feeling that. You know, Mike, not to even compare my educational uh, background to yours, but in 2000, after not being in school for 20 years, I went back to school to get my master's. And I was like, oh, shit. I didn't know how to use Word. I just barely knew how to use the computer because you know, right. it was just started being introduced to us, really. Yeah. Microsoft you had, you Word. Had, you had one of those old brothers typewriters. In the, that's in what the we had in the, in, the, in the detective <laughs> squads. That's, that's true. Yeah. And so I was yeah. really nervous about, you know, just even making it through school. And it turned out, you know, I did, I did okay. I, I mean, I did better than okay, but I was really nervous about it because not being in, in in school for twenty years and then going back and say, "Oh, I'm going to get my master's," I was like, maybe this wasn't such a good idea, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, when I first went into the detective bureau, or actually in RIP in the robbery squad, they had keyboard. Uh, the keys on the typewriter were manual typewriters and oh, yeah. see, see guys typing. That was around 1987. So there was, there, they had the electric typewriters and they had the, uh, they still had the manual ones. And then when the manual ones were kind of fading out, got, the guys were uh, starting to try and hold on to them and they, they couldn't order the ribbons and stuff. Then everybody went to the electrics and they used to steal the ball. Remember that? Right, the, yeah, people the would take the ball home with them because people yeah, would steal the damn thing. Yeah. Cause it, it was, one guy's went bad and they would take it from another typewriter. Typewriter, so everybody held on to their own ball. But uh, and then the computers that just uh, revolutionized everything. And uh, you really, you know, as an investigator, you had to be up to date on how to, you know, if the, the, the something happened, they said get a picture of the guy. You had to go into the computer, be able to pull up a picture, run a guy for uh, criminal uh, history, you know, drive his license, things like that. So you had to you had to be on top of it. And you know, I could navigate through pretty good. But like Bill said, it's uh, it's a little difficult to really like a lot of times, like with the new phones and stuff. I'll get my kids to say, you know, how do I do this? How do I do that? You know. Yeah, I'm the same way. And you know, the funny thing was the NYPD, we were probably like four to five years behind other departments because, you know, they just didn't want to allocate the money for the computers and stuff. So when other departments had the computerized complaint follow-up system, the computerized photo system, we were still in the caves hitting two rocks together to 
get a yeah. spark to start a fire. And we, yeah. it was like, we used to actually use our own emails to correspond with other departments to get like photos. Like if they had a bad guy we were looking for and we needed his photo and it wasn't in our system, we had to use our own, cause they didn't have department wide emails. It was so antiquated. It oh, was ridiculous. Man. Yeah, yeah I, I I could remember that, Bill, and I can remember using the fax machine, taking a picture of the guy, making a copy of it, sending it on a fax, and, and a fax then, they were so blurry and dark, real difficult. <laughs> there, there's and, another word, fax, that doesn't exist anymore, yeah, really. Yeah, fax, nobody even you know? knows anymore. Yeah. I called my insurance agent the other day to fax them something, and she's like, yeah, you could just send it to this uh, to this number. The same number that I'm calling would accept faxes. So I guess there's there's a system in place there that you could just, you know, call the number and then it links to a fax machine, you know? Well, I hate now when you have to try to sign something digitally on the computer. I'm like, oh, my God. How do I keep on yelling for my son? How do I do this? You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everything's by DocuSign now. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, Mike, I got a, a question for you now. I'm looking at your resume here. And you're a doctor of emergency medicine, uh, mm -hmm. demolitions expert, SWAT sniper, civilian paramedic, all of these different things. I mean, it's it hats off to you. It's all fantastic. But there's one thing in here. And if I think I'm correct, halo, high altitude, low opening parachutist. Now, that tells me you're opening at the last possible minute is that correct can you explain that well to you open at four thousand feet if you open below okay. that you're going to get in a little bit of trouble so right uh but that's uh, low enough know, i think yeah yeah it's i mean four thousand feet's pretty high though well, well you're, you're traveling at a high rate of speed too so four thousand feet could be a couple of seconds your, now. your terminal velocity when you're falling out of a plane is in theory is 120 miles an hour okay so you know you go out at sixteen thousand feet you know, and you fall down to 4,000 feet before you open. So most of your jumps are at around, you, you're, you're jumping anywhere between 12,000 to, to just under 13,000. The highest I've jumped personally is somewhere between, I'd have to look at my jump log, somewhere between 16 and 17. We had a an altitude cap when I was in the course. Um, I know guys have jumped quite a bit higher than I have, though. Now, you so still jump out of planes for fun or no? I did. I did for a while. Um, it's it's an expensive hobby, and it's kind of it's kind of like golf. It's also an all day hobby, right? So you know you got to drive somewhere to do it. And uh, really, once once I started doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and that became my main hobby, I kind of I, I sold my hockey gear, I sold my parachute, I stopped doing other stuff. So you know, Mike, someone in the chat wants to know, and they said stupid question, and it's not a stupid question. There are how no do you know? Stuff. How do you know when you're at four thousand feet? Oh, yeah. you got an altimeter. You got a nice altimeter, altimeter uh, yeah. on your wrist, and it's big. It's like this big around. So, so you're watching. It's and it's funny because when you when you first start jumping, you get what's called altimeter fixation. Is you'll be like you'll, you'll be doing this, right. literally watching the needle move. And the more comfortable you get, you kind of get to the point where okay, I come out, I'm gonna turn a little bit, I'm gonna look at some stuff do a quick glance and uh, I'm going to, I see some guys over there. I'm going to turn and kind of focus on them, track on them a little bit. Now I'm going to look and uh, you get better at, at it over time, but early on you're, and you're, cause you're terrified because the instructors are telling you if you pull high or you pull low, we're going to kick you out of here. So you're like, <laughs> you want to, you got this really narrow window where you got to wave off and pull. So you, you really fixated on that altimeter. You know, Mike, I'd be searching for my glasses. Yeah, well, you got to wear it. So, uh, where are my glasses? <laughs> you can wear you wear these big. So, typically, we wear uh, these pretty slim down goggles. But if you wear glasses, 
you wear your glasses and then you have a bigger set of goggles over the over the top of them. Oh, okay. But uh, those those come off. Yeah, you're gonna have a pretty hard time seeing those numbers in that needle. That might be. A you know, do you remember that the old man Bush did a jump on his 85th birthday? Oh yeah. yeah. How yeah. incredible was that? I mean, that yeah. guy was. You know, he was the shit. You know, head of the CIA. I mean, his vice president twice. I think. I mean. He only did one term as president, but that guy had some background. He was a yeah, jet so fighter pilot, you know? Jet fighter pilot, yeah. So the, the cameraman on that jump uh, actually was one of the guys who taught me how to skydive. He was a, one of the Golden Knights. Wow. Very, very cool. I remember my father. My father was a Marine in World War II, and he did some jumps. And uh, just before he passed away, and he wasn't in good physical condition, he asked me a couple of times, he's, you, you know, do you think I could do a, a jump, one jump before I, you know, I said, Dad, you know, you're, you're not going to make it. And I could never really understand that, you know. And then I went parasailing with my kids a few years back because I never jumped out of a plane. But I went parasailing, and the minute we lifted off the boat, I, I had – it was like a, a with my two daughters – the minute we lifted off and we got up, about 10 seconds in, I said to them, now I know what Grandpa was talking about. There's just such mm -hmm. a feeling, a tranquil feeling, and you're just up there and you feel the wind. And uh, it's really something. I'm sure you can attest to that too, Mike. Uh, yeah, it it's, really a, it's just, a really special feeling. It's uh, yeah, when, you're, when yeah. you're under canopy and the conditions are right and you, know, you can see all the way to the horizon, there's something uh, really special about that. Yeah, we we were down in uh, in Marco Island, Florida. So it was a beautiful sunny day. You know, the water's blue green, and it was really it was a great experience. But I kind of connected what what my father had said, and and it, it made me think. Now I know what he was talking about. You know. Oh yeah, Phil. How come then you haven't scheduled to jump out of a plane? Let's not get panicking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Maybe maybe on the bucket list one day, but not right this minute. <laughs> now, Mike, are you still active duty or no, or reserve? No, or? I, I retired from the military in 2016. So. And you're working as a doctor now? Uh, I work as a physician. I work as what's called a locums physician, so I don't have any one particular hospital that I work for. Um, I'm credentialed a few different places, so when they have a, a shortage or a need, they give me a call. Um, I also, uh, I work as, uh, I'm what they call the global clinical advisor for a company called safeguard medical that, uh, sells uh, pre-hospital and hospital supply. And then I've, I've got side businesses on the side that I do and I do my swap doctoring. So you live in lodge. Is that what you're trying to say? No, I, I got, a, I got a lot of, I got a lot of side hustles, but all together. So my wife frequently points out to me that. You know, side hustles and everything combined, it's still about half of what I could be getting paid if I were a permanent attending physician at a hospital right. somewhere. And I'm like, yeah, but I'd be miserable. You That's know, right. You're, you're much. And I, yeah, and I'm and I'm building my own brand. And, and enjoying doing that. So, you know, some someday that's going to kick in and, and I'll be making money. So Jack of all trades, as they say, right? Exactly <laughs> what they say. So. They're, they're definitely a, uh, uh, a sacrifice. Like when I went into law enforcement, I did it from the heart. I wanted to be a cop from when I was uh, probably about 10 or 11 years old. And, you know, I seen friends who went into the, you know, became stockbrokers who opened businesses and they kind of accelerated past me financially. But I got to tell you, and there's that old saying, if you do what you like, you'll never work a day in your life, you know? And, and mm -hmm. I had some bad days on the department when I was being shot at. And I saw 9-11 and I had a, a cop killed, uh, you know, while we were working, two cops shot. So there were some bad days. But overall, I loved the job and, uh, you know, I don't regret it at all. And I, I think that uh, that saying is so true, you know. So you're probably following your passion 
And maybe you're not at the level that a, a, a attending physician would be, but uh, you got all these other things going. So, and uh, pretty pretty good with uh, the History Channel hunting Hitler in your resume. Uh, we got We got to talk about that. That sounds like an interesting. Uh, <laughs> that, interesting now, Mike, it says that you currently reside in Central Texas with your wife Denise, sons Zechariah and Daniel, and two yeah. English bulldogs, Leonidas and Esmeralda. Love those names, man. Leonidas yeah. was was that. Where was that from? That was the king, was that he was Greek? The king of Sparta. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. He probably Spar most people know it from the movie Three Hundred. Oh my God, those guys were jacked. I was yeah, like, they yeah. must have had they met a, a whole crew that must have all been on roids because every single actor was jacked in that uh, movie. Yeah, I think they actually released a they. I think they did a, a video thing that was like the the actual program that they all used to get jacked for that movie. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the secret was in in a little bit of special supplements. As I th I think so yeah. too. You know, I don't think they were uh, the juice. They were hitting the juice. It, it was juice, yeah, yeah. It was it was a high protein steak diet. You know, it was just <laughs> it was this, those injections in your left cheek that were doing yeah, it. Yeah, it was what, what Joe Rogan likes to call the Mexican supplements. Right? <laughs> the Mexican yeah. That's great. Yeah, in Mexico, right over the counter, you go walk into a drugstore, you can buy anything over the counter there. Oh, yeah. My, Mike, yeah. we're going to go to just a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the evacuation of American forces in Afghanistan. All right. Okay. Okay. Are you tired of the same old surroundings, looking to relocate, or are you just in need of a real estate agent in the Myrtle Beach, South Carolina area? Well, Carol Waters is your girl. Her and her husband, Rob Mahan, who's a retired member of the NYPD and the New York Fire Department, are both million-dollar sales agents. Carol and her husband, Rob, can be reached at 914-261-6681. That's 914-261-6681. Or you could email her at carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. That's carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. One of our clients was quoted as saying she always goes the extra mile. Joe Murray, attorney at law, uh, frequent guest on Police Off the Cuff, who's a little under the weather. Get well soon, Joe. We're all praying for you. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York City area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Get well soon, Joe. Folks, police... Coffee is an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends. Uh, it's made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. And our specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Our coffee is some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause, giving back to our community. 50% of our profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. To order coffee and related products from policecoffee.com, go to the website. There are over seven types of coffee to choose from, and 50% of the profits go to officers, families in need. For a 10% discount, use code OTC10. The website now is policecoffee.com.
If you're looking for supplements, be sure to check out the products from FirstDoNutrition.com. As first responders, there are certain expectations in our performance on the job. We train hard and drill often to be able to perform at our best when duty calls. Whether it's hoofing over 100 pounds of gear or engaging in a spontaneous foot chase, we work out like our life depends on it, because it does. Two New York City firemen created this supplement line with hand-picked products that will not pop positive on any drug test for first responders. Solid pre-workout products that will give you a good pump and a short-term strength boost that can help you power through your workout. Supplements that help with fat burning and weight loss and post-workout formulas that support recovery. Go to firstnutrition.com. Use code OFFTHECUFF to get a 10% discount off your order. Oh, we're all getting these discounts. So, uh, Mike, what we were talking about before, and a, a lot of people in law enforcement, a lot of people uh, obviously in the, in the armed services, and I think more, if you had to say, the left or the right, most of many Republicans are really distressed over the way that we left Afghanistan. I don't think anyone, uh, I shouldn't say anyone, but I think most people agree we should have, we should get the hell out of there. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not that we should have gotten out. It's how we got out of there and, and leaving $85 billion worth of American equipment and weapons for a a regime that is no better than terrorists. And, uh, you know, I, having said all of this stuff and myself editorializing, I'd like to know um, your opinion on this. Uh, great question. Um, my opinion is, and and I think I was, I don't think it was one of the first, necessarily the first people to voice this opinion, but uh, I, I, I hadn't heard it picked up anywhere else when I started saying it. Now I've heard it quite a bit. But again, I don't. I don't think I was one of the first. I think it, a bunch of us came up with it independently. I was. I back when we uh, pulled out of Bagram initially. I was really surprised by that because I thought Bagram would be the absolute last place we would pull out of it. It made the most sense. It's not. Uh, it's not densely populated around Bagram. Bagram's an ancient city. I think at the when before we were there, I don't even think ten thousand people lived there, and I think at most during the swell of the people that, you know, worked and, and, and helped us on that base. I think it swelled maybe to around 40,000. Um, uh, Kabul is four and a half million. So about half of what Manhattan has slightly over what Los Angeles has. And I, I was just saying this the other day, this is the equivalent of if you had, let, let's say just, let's say uh, you had Bagram air force base just across uh just across the Hudson there in Jersey, right. With not a lot around it. And you knew you were going to have to evacuate a bunch of people, but you said, you know what, we can have people drive over from Manhattan and we can also be flying people over simultaneously from Manhattan. Let's say central park is where the airfield is. Right. But then you, and, but then somebody said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're just going to fly everybody out of central park. Obviously that's a bad idea. And, and, and I don't, I have to believe that that people with some rank on their collar spoke up and said that's a bad idea, because what would have made the most sense is to set up a tent city at Bagram, convoy and fly people from Kabul to Bagram, put them in these tent cities, vet them there, because you know that's the the big problem that they had at Kabul is they couldn't bring people in the gate till they vetted them, and there's only one runway in Kabul. You know, Bagram's a massive airfield, so you would have had plenty of room to to keep people. You could have had flights going 24 seven. 
much easier to control, much easier to defend. So I think if I had to point to one key mistake, I think that would be it. I think literally we could have done probably everything else, the same timeline and everything else, had we kept Bagram and we didn't. And that was a that was a colossal mistake. And the fact that this administration won't admit that mistake when it so obviously was a mistake is what I have the biggest heartburn with. Um, the only, oddly enough, you know, it's funny you mentioned left versus right. And I know that's not an avenue we want to get really deep into, but when the only person you hear praising this administration is, uh, is Michael Moore, I think that pretty much tells you everything you need. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Good yeah. point right there. So that, uh, you, you guys don't censor for language on this show. No, right? no, you can say no. whatever you want. Yeah. That fat fuck has been on the wrong side of every <laughs> issue since he was born. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Thank so, you. Yeah, that guy's literally never been right about anything. And and you know what else? He's he a fucking, fucking lies jerk about off. his own history. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, he, he lies about his own family. He lies about his own history. It's as far as I, if as far as I'm concerned, that guy's a worthless piece of shit. And yeah. heart disease can't take him out soon enough. And I and I don't <laughs> I don't talk that way about a lot of people. Right. Mike, do you think that because the Taliban was advanced and that's why they gave up the bigger airport? Is that a possibility or so if, if you look at if you look at where the axis of advance would have been, yeah, certainly that you know that's closer to Pakistan, obviously, but it's also a lot easier to control, and uh, and it only fell because we abandoned it in the middle of the night and didn't do a proper turnover. I, I think it would have been relatively you know for, you know having been there, having spent you know quite a few days and nights there, and in some of the satellite bases around the area it would have been much easier to control than Kabul would have been. I mean, Kabul is a nightmare. You know, again, it's, I, I equate, you know, uh, uh, Herman Karzai International Airport is literally, imagine if you paved the runway down the middle of Central Park and that's where you're trying to fly everybody. I'm mean, trying to control that. I mean, you can imagine what a nightmare that would be, right? So, I mean, that's basically what they were doing in a city that's of why four we and had the casualties. That's why we had the casualties because yeah. they, were, they were wide open for it. Yeah, I mean, it and clear. it's... And you kept hearing how basically they were only letting them come in through one gate too, right? So, I mean, you imagine what choke a choke point. point that is. No, oh, we said it at the same time, choke point. Yeah, choke point. You know, you know, Mike, one of the things is too, and this, the, the epitome of arrogance is when you're not an expert at something, but yet you're the decision maker. And I'm mm -hmm. sure that Biden and this administration asked the experts and they didn't like what they heard. So they did it what they wanted to do anyway. That happens yeah. also a lot in policing. People oh, yeah, tell man. police what to do that have no idea how policing is done. And they mm -hmm. make these outrageous rules and things that the police have to live with. And I could see they did this. I mean, it was clear that they did this in the military because I'm sure several generals said, no, don't do it that way. You got to do it this way. And they just, just, that is the epitome of arrogance when they don't listen to the experts. And we saw the results of that. They, they, yeah, they were yeah. obviously overruled. And, uh, you know, there was one point I wanted to make, Mike, too. And, and somebody said this to me about a week ago, and it's very, very important. These guys were not killed. The 13 that were killed, they were not killed in battle. It was they were attacked. It was an outright terrorist attack and a murder. That's what I think is getting lost in the media. And, you know, uh, the way Biden's handling it, and he's almost making it sound like, well, you know, these guys were killed. No. They were helping people. They were helping little kids. I mean, you've seen the videos, you know, hours before they were killed, uh, trying to help little kids and stuff. And that's what the Taliban or ISIS-K or whoever it is attacked. 
And that's the message that needs to be sent through the media. This was not guys that were, you know, were on a battlefield and they were killed in battle. No, this was a, an attack. It's very similar, maybe not on the same level as 9-11, but it's the same thing. We were attacked. Innocent, you know, even though they were soldiers, they were innocent. They were helping people. They weren't, they weren't in battle, you know. So and I think that's a point that gets lost in this whole thing. And, you know, Republican, Democrat, whatever. Bill said it. We're all in agreement that we needed to get out of there. We shouldn't lose one life. It's going on 20 years. We needed to get out of there. But there was a much more strategic plan that could have been in place to remove ourselves from there. And all they were worried about, and I really believe this in my heart, all this administration was worried about is that Donald Trump was the one that wanted to uh, have a plan to get out. And they didn't want to do it on his timeline or follow anything that he did because it would give him some props. And they didn't want that. So they in plain English, they fucked it up, and we had guys that died and countless civilians. It was unnecessary. It could have been done in an orderly fashion, and they need to take responsibility for it. And I think that that was a great point that you made, Mike, that you said, you know, they, they, they just will not admit it. And that's just been the Democratic line. And I'm not talking about, listen, there's Republicans that I don't like, there's Democrats that I don't like. But the line that they've been taking is they will never admit the truth, anything that's going to be bad. And they're always thinking about reelection. And and they that's all they think about. They never think about the people that they serve. We pay their salary, and they mm-hmm. always forget that. And that's a shame with politics. Politics is a dirty sport. But the Biden administration, not because I, you know I voted for Trump, they need to take responsibility for this. This is terrible. And I think the American people are very forgiving, and they might say, okay, at least he admitted it. They didn't do it intentionally. They made a decision. It was the wrong decision. Man up. Own up to it. That's what this administration has to do. And I think people would feel a lot better about it, whether Republican or Democrat. You know, you you want the accountability here. That's what it's all about. And that's what Donald Trump was all about in his businesses. And, and I'm not trying to do a Trump stump here, but he was about accountability. And that's what we need in this country. We have zero accountability, especially in law enforcement. They they want to put us out there, stop question and frisk is out the window. They're bail reform where they're letting guys out on the street. I mean, in San Francisco, they're walking into uh, CVS, Walmart, all these different mm-hmm. stores and walking out with bags of shit because they're not getting arrested for it. So, you know, what's yeah. going on here? What Bill said earlier, we have people making decisions that have no clue on what the ramifications are going to be. Or even if they do know, they don't give a care. They don't give a shit about it. They just want to come up with these politically, you know, defund the police. How insane is that to fund the police? Think about it. And yet last summer and up until now, it was a very catchy phrase. And they actually did. I mean, in New York, they took, I think, what was it? A a billion dollars? A billion dollars off the police budget. One billion dollars out of the police budget for the NYPD. One billion dollars. I can't say it enough. And then you got cops out there. Bill was talking about it earlier. You're afraid to take any action. And I've said this before. Any type of force if you have to uh, put handcuffs on a 100-pound woman and she starts to resist, it looks terrible. Or if it's a six foot four, hundred, 280-pound uh, boxer, if he starts to resist, it doesn't look good. And this is what they're basing all this defund the police nonsense on and race. And uh, it just, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I would Mike, like to see some accountability. In that Mike, kind of- I have a part B to that, but let me just first, I have to thank sure. two people in the chat. Uh, Fuzzy Doxy, thank you so much for the nine ninety nine super super sticker. Uh, Nancy Drew, thank you so much for the four ninety nine super sticker. All you folks that I see the green uh, type, 
Thank you so much for joining the Police Off the Cuff family. That means your channel members. We so so appreciate you. Uh, we need you. all the, we need all the support we can get. And uh, thank uh, thank you so much. Part B, I want to know, uh, Mike, and this is a natural outgrowth of what we were talking about, is because we left Afghanistan and because this wave of people have now entered our country without being vetted, are we in danger, more danger now of a terrorist attack than we were before? Uh, yeah, absolutely we are. So w for a number of reasons. So I would say that that that's one of the reasons that we're in more danger because we have some we do have some unvetted individuals on American soil. Is, is that does the possibility exist that ISIS K and or the Taliban uh, infiltrated those groups? Yeah, that certainly exists. Um, but see, getting here was never really going to be a problem for them anyway because our southern border is wide open. So what I would be more concerned with it's and I was having this conversation with a family member. Uh, just last week. My biggest concern right now is uh, we left a lot of military hardware over there to include a lot of high-tech drones. So right now there's nothing to prevent the Taliban. So they've got, and they've got tons of money, right? We know they're already selling our Humvees to both Pakistan and uh, Iran. They can sell them to China. They can sell them to Russia. So now they can book passage on a plane, on a ship, they can make their way to Mexico. They can go to they can go to Ensenada or Tijuana, launch a drone on September 11th and take out targets in Los Angeles or San Diego with a drone like that. And that's what I think we should be worrying about, because I think that's that's a legitimate. You know, even even when we're talking about the bigger drones, you know, the ones that are typically used in in a more offensive capability. We, we know that all over Mexico, there are these narco airfields. The narcos are going to have no problem at all with letting somebody use their airfield if it means disrupting and maybe opening up a, an opportunity for them to bring more stuff across the border. So I think this is probably the most dangerous 9-11 anniversary we have seen uh, ever, um, especially knowing that people who legitimately hate us have a lot of high-tech weaponry and access to a completely wide open southern border right now. You know, it's it's very, very scary because like what I said before is that the people who are in charge, they don't listen to the people who are the experts. And I'm sure the experts like yourself are telling the people in charge, look, you got to watch out for this. This is this is the situation now. And they choose not to listen. You know, they really yeah. choose not to listen. And, and I, I appreciate the compliment. I don't consider myself to be an expert. You know, it's to me, it's like the commercial. I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. Right. Um, you know, I have been, we, we used to, and I, I know you guys do this in law enforcement too. We used to have a, a thing we used to do in planning. We called them the red hat guys. So the team would come up with a plan and then I would pretend like, okay, I'm, I'm the opposing force. I'm going to take you down. Here's all the ways I'm going to shoot holes in your plan. Here's the way that I would exploit weaknesses in your plan. And because I've done that in the past and I continue to do that, uh, and I, I give talks on it to, to SWAT teams and to, to uh, municipal leaders on how they need to be doing realistic training with what we call a red cell or a red hat guy. Um, and I have to believe, I mean, somebody has to be doing that at the national level right now. And a lot of bells and whistles should be going off that we 
we're in a we're not in my opinion we're we're in a high state of threat going into this September 11th anniversary. Yeah, I mean, it I have sounds to agree like with you. too what you described, Mike. It sounds like it's a long-term problem because the stuff might not get over to the Mexican border or wh however they're going to come at us. It might take time. Obviously, we're at high alert right now. Always around September 11th, we're at high alert. But it sounds like, I mean, is that protocol to leave that kind of stuff behind? I mean, normally, you know, when they when they went after Bin Laden, one of the helicopters was damaged. They blew it up. I mean, wouldn't that be protocol to, to if you can't take it with you, to, to destroy it? Wouldn't that be protocol, Mike? A lot of the stuff that was left behind was supposed to get used uh, by our partner forces. Um, and some of it actually, so the forces that were in Kabul did manage to, to make time to destroy some of that, but not all of that. Uh, and to disable some of it. But what what was supposed to happen by the original plan, uh, you know, let's, let's say that none of that stuff was supposed to come out, which I don't think that's the case. I've heard that argument made. But I think the majority of that was supposed to go to the, to the ANA. But I think uh, a large percent of it, especially the things like the drones, I think were supposed to be used by our people and were supposed to get brought out. But let's say it was all going to get left. Under the original plan that uh, the Trump administration made, it wouldn't have mattered because once the Taliban started to step up and do what they were doing, we wouldn't have pulled out because it, it's we kind of reflect back on the Biden administration wanted to have it both ways. They want to blame Trump for his plan, but they didn't adhere to his plan because according to the Trump administration's plan, because the Taliban never sat down with the provisional government to make the final peace accords, we were not supposed to, that May 1st deadline was a non-issue. All There was no deadline because since they haven't come to the table, you know, if had Donald Trump been reelected, we wouldn't have been pulling out we, unless, unless it would have been through forcing them to come to the table. Um, and then once they kind of picked up their opposition, uh, that was, a, that would have been another deal breaker that, that we wouldn't have left. Mike so Pompeo. Mike Pompeo was just quoted in the last few days that there was a conversation between Donald Trump and the head of the Taliban, and his thing was that there was going to be conditions. And he told him, if you hurt one hair on one soldier or one American, you take one American life, you're going to feel the wrath, the fury of the United States military. And I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something close to that. And I think that when, when they saw that Trump was out and Biden was in, they probably, you know, just went along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They went along with everything. And look what they did. They, they, they kicked us right in the ass, you know? Crazy. Yeah. And we, of course, we have the story now that, uh, that Biden's people were talking to the Taliban. The Taliban offered to not even close on Kabul. And they said, but then you guys are going to be responsible for security there. And the Americans uh, contingent said no. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's that's the story that's going around now. That's crazy. JR, thank you so much for the $20 super uh, sticker. Really, really appreciate that. Christine Melcher, thank you so much. You. All of this support is uh, very much needed and very much appreciated. You know, Mike, I want to give you a chance. I, don't, I know we picked your brain. I want to give you a chance to talk in the last five or seven minutes about your book uh, because we haven't given you any chance at all. <laughs> that's and, okay. That's uh, fun. Um, you wrote a book called Honed, and and uh, early on, before we went on the air, Phil and I were strenuously disagreeing with this, saying, "Hey, you're not, you're not, you're not the age we are, and then if yeah. you were, you wouldn't be talking this shit." You know, <laughs> I want to hear the secrets, though, because I, I'm, I'm, you know, I worked out my whole life, and 
in the last couple of years, I'm, I just turned 60 last September. So in the last couple of years, it's uh-huh. gotten a little more difficult between injuries and this and that. So hit us with some uh, some stuff that could help everyone. Sure. Matt. So, you know, to put it in perspective, so I'm, I'm 55 years old. Uh, I talk about in the introduction chapter of the book that I was, you know, I was 48, still getting in firefights uh, with the Rangers. So uh, it's I, I have had to kind of figure out the hard way some stuff when it comes to longevity optimization versus performance optimization and kind of how to stay in the fight uh, at 55. But to give you guys an example, so in the uh, just an hour before we went live, I was at the gym. So this is my heart rate tracing from my workout tonight. So I'm still getting in the gym five to six days a week, uh, putting it in. This was 779 calories burned, getting my heart rate up up, up into the high zone and pushing it hard. And I do that because I eat right. I work out smart. I drink plenty of water. I get plenty of sleep and I recover properly. And th- again, these were things I kind of had to figure out on my own, especially when it came to supplements, because you get a lot of mixed messaging out there. And I found myself doing a lot of research on my own as a physician and as a guy who wants to keep kicking ass and, you know, keeping up with SWAT operators uh, for long days and of training and, and actual operations. And uh, I got a lot of emails and a lot of questions on social media about, Hey doc, what do I do about this? What do I do about that? And finally I said, you know what, I'm just going to put this all together in a book. And uh, I think for me, it's, it's absolutely been the recipe for the fountain of youth. Um, I'm a hundred percent confident if I, if I ran into me from 15 years ago, I could kick my own ass uh, <laughs> pretty easily. So, uh, you know, I keep getting stronger. I'm not, I'm not, I'm quicker, but I'm not faster because I don't like running long distances, but hundred percent I'm stronger and probably in the best shape of my entire life. And that's in spite of a hundred percent VA disability rating and numerous chronic injuries uh, but again, I work out, I work out smart and, and I approach things scientifically. And so far the feedback, it, I'm, it's an Amazon bestseller in like eight different categories. Um, all of my ratings have been uh, five star, except for one individual who basically wanted me to do the exercises for him, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, the, you know, the no reception to this book has been amazing. So, you know, from everybody, from fellow physicians to uh current and former mixed martial artists and professional athletes. So uh, I, I'm really happy with the product that I got out there. Mike, it'll, it'll help people. Mike, can I read, this is my favorite quote from you. Okay. I'm, I'm a highly trained in both killing and life-saving. So if you piss me off enough, I may kill you, then resuscitate you just so that I can kill you again. <laughs> so it's even better like with the new, just just so, you, so I can kill you again. It's even better yeah. with the New York accent. <laughs> you, you kill you again. That's true. Yeah. That's, That's great. I, like that. I mean, it's so look. Staying in shape is so important, and I still work out. You know, four or five days a week. But I've had to change my workout, like Phil mentioned, because of injuries. You know, I have arthritis mm-hmm. in both my shoulders. I have a new left hip two years ago, I may need a new right hip and all of this stuff. Like uh, in the police service, we do a hell of a lot of uh, standing up, especially if you're an investigator standing over mm-hmm. bodies, standing up, working 16 in straight hours. Shoes. Yeah, exactly. And you know, with, having with that a gun d- belt with a gun around belt, your waist. Yeah. yeah and that yeah. destroys your lower back yeah. eating shitty food, pizza, Chinese food, cop food, cheeseburgers, Shift you know, work. Yeah, yeah, all that, exactly. And all that stuff beats the shit out of you. And even yeah. though you try to stay healthy, the forces of nature are, are fighting against you. And, you know, you can't 
get bad habits back, you can try to improve on them once you're not doing that type of work anymore. Bill, yeah, you got to take you got to take that big stuff bulky wallet that you got with all the cash in it. Yeah, from your I, don't, I don't carry you cash anymore. You you got to put it in your front pocket. Or something. You know, you the bat you, you know, we just did a couple of shows with wise guys. Don't tell them I have money. I'll have to carry a second <laughs> clip. You know, two <laughs> clips. Yes. Yeah, yes. we you know we we say Mike uh, jokingly when we go to uh, someplace in the city, we say, "Is that a one or two clip location?" Depending yeah. on how, ah. how dangerous the neighborhood is. <laughs> Cop humor, okay. you know. But it, it is great. And you know something, Mike, you've been an unbelievable guest. I mean, one of the things, of course, we everyone would love to say is thank you for your service. And people- 100%. Thank uh, you. People, people say that to us, and we appreciate that. And when people yeah, say that to yeah, guys you know, in the service- you know, My hat's off to both of you. You know, everything that you did, that's being on the job uh, in New York City. I mean, that's- to me, that's the that is literally the epitome of a cop, right? I mean, you don't you don't see cop shows about Austin, Texas. You know, you see you see cop shows about New York City. Exactly that's for a reason. That's for sure. Hey, that picture that picture of Mike with the uh, with the machete. He would have done great when I worked in uh, East Flatbush. With that's that right. <laughs> he would have fit was, right in. Every picture that was good. I like that. Uh, you know, get, some, sometime get, when we get a chance, I need to pick your guys' brain. So I wrote a screenplay uh, for a story uh, about, and it's about uh, an Irish cop from Hell's Kitchen, uh, who's a second generation cop. Uh, who, who decides to, to throw it all away and he ends up going to Vietnam uh, in the 1960s. And it's, uh, I won't give away too much, but it's uh, basically he ends up going to Vietnam and then having to solve a murder over there. So, uh, I, so at some point I need to get with you guys and pick your brain and kind of get some, some cool details to, to flesh out that character. Cool. Get uh, Chris, get fresh, stay blessed. Thank you for the $50 super chat. Uh, ADA Lugo, uh, Ada, excuse me, Ada Lugo stabbed to death, 417-1994-985 Simpson Street. Please reopen the case from my fiance's uh, closer. Please, I beg you, Mr. Cannon. I, I promise you I will call the Bronx Cold Case Squad and I'll get an update on this case. I don't know anything about this case. I know you sent me an email. Uh, if you could, again, maybe uh, uh, re-message me with more of the details. But I can't personally reopen this case. And I'm sure no homicide case is ever closed. I That's just right. want you to know that. It's never closed. There's no statute of limitations. I don't know where they are. I would imagine since this was 1994, probably the Bronx Cold Case Squad has this case. So I'm going to try to call them for you and see if they have anything on the case. That's all I can promise you. I can't physically go out there with Phil and reinvestigate this case. But Thank you so much for the super chat, and I promise I will give them a call and try to find out about this for you. Good deal, Bill. Good deal. Phil, you have any final uh, thoughts, words? Well, I got to tell you, it was a pleasure, Mike, to meet with you and to be on the podcast with you. And again, thank you for your service. And uh, you have a tremendous resume. And uh, you keep keep doing what you're doing. Um, God bless you. And uh, hope to meet up with you again. Hopefully, uh, yeah, if you have uh, something you want to go over with that screenplay, uh, I have a good friend of mine, uh, Stephen Gardell, who's a retired sergeant from the movie TV unit that does, uh, you know, he's working on a couple of shows right now. So we could always put either put you in touch with him or you could pick our brains. It'd be a pleasure. 
Um, yeah, and as far as uh, this thing that's going as to the debacle in Afghanistan, I just hope and pray that all those that were injured recover and, and our uh, sympathies to the families of those 13 lost soldiers. I, I saw an interview with one of the parents. It's just heartbreaking, and uh, I hope that they could find some peace and, and solace in this whole thing. And it would be nice if somebody took some accountability and uh, shined light on it. And thanks again, Mike. Great to meet you. Gentlemen, thank you for having me on. It's been uh, it's been a slice. I really appreciate it. Hopefully, I can get out to New York in the near future. We can go to McSorley's and, and have a beer or two. So absolutely, that would be great. And folks, for all you uh, folks that listen tonight, all you uh, members of the Police Off the Cuff family, all you Patreon members, all you folks just listening, uh, Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, thank you so much for all you do for us. You and your wife Richella, Harlem Raiders. Street Crime Unit, we own the night forever. Um, folks, we just want to, you know, be safe in this world. Duty, Ron, thank you so much. I know you showed up right near the end, but thank you so much for the $10 Super Chat. We have a real American hero on the show tonight, Mike Simpson. And, uh, you know, if you didn't watch the show now, you can watch it once it's it's on YouTube, and uh, it's a great show. So on behalf of um, myself, Bill Cannon, and Phil, Phil Grimaldi, and Mike Simpson, folks, be safe, and thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, everybody.